Harvard Divinity School. Decolonize Now, a conversation about radical imagination and justice in Israel-Palestine, April 6th, 2022. Great. So welcome, everyone, to our sixth event in the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Spring Semester Series, Disrupting Injustice and Promoting Moral Imagination in Israel-Palestine. My name is Hilary Rantisi, and I'm the Associate Director of Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative, and a co-instructor of the course, Narratives of Displacement and Belonging in Israel-Palestine. The work of Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative, which is part of the Religion and Public Life Program at the Divinity School, centralizes an analysis of structural injustice, violence, and power, and examines how a more capacious understanding of religion can yield fresh insights into contemporary challenges and opportunities for just peace building. The primary case study we're focusing on is Israel-Palestine, and the aim is to stretch the scholarly discourse around religion and the practices of peace building and examine the decolonial potentialities of art, religion, and identity transformation. The series this semester showcases religion, conflict, and peace fellows and their work. While affiliated with our program, they have all worked on a variety of projects from illuminating transnational solidarities to reimagining Jewish identity, supporting Palestinian steadfastness, Sumud, and cultivating moral imagination and creative possibilities for just peace in Israel-Palestine. Today's event highlights non-resident fellow Noura Arikat, who will be in conversation with Professor Marshall Gantz about what radical imagination and what justice in Israel-Palestine could look like. It gives me great pleasure to introduce both of them today. So Professor Noura Arikat is a human rights attorney and associate professor at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, in the Department of Africana Studies and the program in criminal justice. Her research interests include human rights law, humanitarian law, national security law, refugee law, social justice, and critical race theory. Noura is an editorial committee member of the Journal for Palestine Studies and a co-founding editor of Jadalia, an electronic magazine on the Middle East that combines scholarly expertise and local knowledge. She's the author of Justice for Some, Law in the Question of Palestine, published in 2019 by Stanford University Press. And Professor Marshall Gantz is the Rita E. Hauser Senior Lecturer in Leadership, Organizing and Civil Society at Harvard Kennedy School. He's also a senior fellow with us at Religion, Conflict and Peace Initiative. He teaches, researches and writes on leadership, narrative, strategy and organization and social movements, civic associations and politics. Um, I am. I can't wait for today's conversation between these two uh, wonderful friends. And um, I, before I hand it over to them, I just have a, a few notes on on housekeeping. So first of all, uh, participants can type in questions in the Q and A feature at the bottom of the screen. Please don't use a chat. That's only for technical issues that may come up. Uh, questions. Questions aren't visible to other participants, and if you prefer to be anonymous, please uh, don't include your name, um, but uh, or uh, mention that it, this is an anonymous question. 
we will ask, we'll try to ask as many questions as possible within the time frame we have um, and apologize if we don't get to all of them. This webinar is being recorded and the video will be available on our website in a few days for viewing. Thank you all for joining us. And without further ado, I welcome uh, professors Nora Rapat and Marshall Gantz. The floor is yours. Thank you, Hillary. Um, hi, Marshall. I think you're still on mute. Oh, oh, I said thank you. And then I said, take it away, Nora. All right. So Marshall and I had a discussion before this event, and we thought um, that it would be uh, actually instructive and, and helpful if we began by placing, you know, by, by almost tracing our political coordinates into this political moment um, and who we are in our political identities. I draw on this practice as it was suggested to me by a dear sister and compa, uh, Professor Shirin Sayed Ali. Uh, and, and just find it to be a very grounding exercise. So I come to this moment as um, the daughter of first-generation uh, Palestinian immigrants into the United States in the Bay Area on Ohlone lands um, in uh, California. And I come into my own political consciousness as a Arab Muslim girl, this only girl in um, amongst three brothers, where the maldistribution of privileges and, and uh, responsibilities, whereby I had all the responsibilities, but none of the privileges, uh, basically primed me to be a, a little baby feminist before I had the language for feminism. And it was that framework and that lens and the insistence that there was nothing natural in the world around us not our gender, not, you know, gender constructions, not, you know, not our households, not the concentration of authority in a particular father figure, not racism, not poverty and wealth. And soon when I went to Palestine at age seven for the first time and later at age 14, which was one of the most formative experiences, also that time by myself without my parents, not the situation that Palestinians had been subject to. And so it was that framework with, you know, it was this almost seed of critical inquiry that was planted in me, but also a desire for fairness and justice that I thought was lacking that um, has driven me to want to dedicate myself in this lifetime to leaving the, the world slightly better than I came to it, or at least, you know, planting the seeds so that we have the capacity to continue to strive for this these better possibilities at the age of 18 when I did, or sorry, the age of 20, when I did a study abroad in Palestine, Israel, unfortunately I had to be at Hebrew university for a lot of racist reasons that still exist at UC Berkeley. The second Intifada, Palestine Intifada started or what's known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada. Uh, that experience changed me forever. And it was at that point that, at, you know, a slightly before, but that was the, almost the nail in the coffin where I, I made a conscious decision that I would, of all the things I cared about in the world, of all the things I wanted to fight for, of all the humans I wanted to work with, of the hu broad humanity that I was committed to, that I would dedicate myself to the Palestinian struggle for freedom um, and incorporate all of those things as part of that struggle. And so here I am some 20 years later, 
doing my best to do that work. So much of it has been an experiment of how to do it, whether it be as an organizer, um, you know, BDS, planting BDS seeds across the country, as legal counsel in Congress, <laughs> as a human rights attorney, as, you know, someone, as a, an editor and a writer and an author, um, a mentor, and now in the academy, still trying to look for the many ways that we can apply ourselves to, to figure this out because we don't know, right? There are no answers, but there are attempts um, and there are certain pathways that we know historically and there are certain things that we know for sure, which is that there is nothing besides a critical mass of people who are going to make these changes possible. So that's what brings me here to you today. Your turn, Mark. Thanks, Nora. Um, I have a few more years to account for, uh, but I'll, uh, I'll focus. Uh, <clears throat> my father was a rabbi, my mother a teacher, and grew up uh, mostly in Bakersfield, California, although we had lived in Germany three, for three years after the Second World War when he was a chaplain in the American Army, and um, a lot of his work was with Holocaust survivors. Uh, like my fifth birthday party was in a DP camp uh, that was all children, and I was supposed to give gifts rather than getting them, which at first I was puzzled about until I understood why it was all children, the parents were gone. And, and my parents gratefully interpreted the Holocaust to me as not being simply about anti-Semitism, but about racism, and that racism kills. And uh, as I grew up in, in Bakersfield and then started at Harvard, it was like about as far as I could possibly get from Bakersfield, which is an oil and agriculture town, uh, southern in San Joaquin Valley. Um, I, it was a comment, it was an encounter with an institution that was profoundly elitist, uh, but it was also kind of felt like at the center of the action. Uh, president Kennedy was elected president that year. Um, and it, it um, when, I can say, when, when I really got engaged was uh, after I'd taken a year off to live in Berkeley, 62, 63, and then came back, uh, and that summer of 63 was an extraordinary summer. Uh, it was Medgar Evers was assassinated uh, the four little girls were killed in Birmingham. There were the dogs and the fire hoses. Um, uh, March on Washington, and I became involved with the uh, with work supporting the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee (SNCC) uh, and volunteered then for the Mississippi Summer Project in the spring of '64 uh, to go to Mississippi and support the work of African American organizers there, uh, fighting for political rights through the formation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, and. I think of that experience, because I stayed there for about a year and a half, as really a place where I found my calling. Um, you know, with all due respect to Harvard, my education about race, power, and politics began in Mississippi, uh, because the inequalities were so stark on every level. Uh, on the other hand, at the same time, it was evident that there was a big difference between charity and justice, and that, that asking what's wrong, let me help is a very different question than asking, why is it happening, let me change it. And when you ask the second question, you encounter the challenge of power. And then the question becomes, how do you mobilize the power to actually change the circumstances that are responsible for all the inequality? And the answers that we found were not located in Washington, but rather in people's capacity 
to find within themselves the capacity to turn their own resources into sources of power, of which the Montgomery bus boycott was an excellent example, in which everyone discovered they have feet, but feet could turn individual dependency on the bus company into the bus company's dependency on an organized and collective community. And that was organizing, and it was what uh, I discovered that I could um, it, I could strengthen my own agency by enabling the agency of others, uh, and that uh, I could do it as an outsider. I could do it. I didn't have to be an insider in order to do that, uh, which resonated with my own experience growing up in communities where the Jewish community was always outsiders, and so it was it was challenging. But I also found myself so motivated by the abuse of power, just the arbitrary use of power. You do it because I say you do it. That kind of anger combined with a sense of possibility, I think. And what so inspired me was the work of the young people involved in SNCC. I, the first SNCC staff meeting I went to was in a seminary, Gamma Theological Seminary, and I thought, are there going to be maps and charts all over the place and ideological debate? They were having a uh, preach-off, which was who could imitate Dr. King better. There was a kind of celebratory joy in the struggle that that really that I greatly admired. It, it's like this never was like oh I feel sorry for these poor people. It was like these people are fighting. I want to support that. And after a year and a half in Mississippi, then I. Uh, instead of coming back here to Harvard, I went back to Bakersfield. Cesar Chavez had just started organizing migrant farm workers. I worked with him for the next 16 years, which is really where I learned the organizing craft. Uh, and then another 10 years of electoral work, mostly in California. When I was invited to my 25th reunion here, I still had a year to go because I was a dropout. Uh, and so I came back in 91 to finish my senior year. I was feeling very stuck. And uh, that, so I wrote a senior thesis in history and government, uh, then a master's at the Kennedy School, then a PhD in sociology. And while, while working on the PhD, I was asked to design a course on organizing. Now for me, that was a gift because I could integrate my life experience with the social science I was learning in a pedagogical conversation with a rising generation. Uh, and so I would get to go to class. I do get to go to class twice a week and have a conversation with the future. Uh, and increasingly with the world, given the international composition of who our students are. Uh, I got back into the world of practice, mainly through the Obama campaign in 2007, and since then have been working with people in lots of different parts of the world, trying to figure out how to turn their values into the sources of power that they need in order to create a world into which they, wanna, they want their children to live. So. Um, it's been a privilege for me to be able to learn in these different contexts and keep learning. Uh, I have 140 students right now in our distance learning class and organizing from 31 countries. And, and one, of the, one of the benefits of this was uh, meeting a person named Nisreen Hajjahman from Amman. Uh, and we've been working together for the last 10 years as she's developed something called Ahed which is involved in, uh, in organizing, training, leadership development campaigns, and so forth. Uh, and it has been a real uh, joy to learn with her uh, and her team and her colleagues uh, about how, how can I say, that circumstances are very different, cultures are different, 
But human beings, when you get right down to it, struggle with the same sorts of things. And the question then becomes, how do we respond to those struggles, not just as individuals, but as communities, uh, understanding that unless it turns into action, it's, it's idle. So that's sort of where, where I come from to this. Uh, and happy to have this opportunity, Nora, to explore this critical question. So shall we begin exploring? I think we shall. So let's start with you. So, okay. so what's up? <laughs> um, so I was struck, right, by these uprisings around the world right now in yeah. Chile, in the Sudan, in Sri Lanka. All of them have been, um, right, they're, they, mo they're revolving around mostly economic crises, right? This is, the, this is the neoliberal crisis. Neoliberalism is supposed to be in crisis. Capitalism is supposed to be in crisis. It's not sustainable. Um, and yet it finds new lifelines for itself. Um, I think one of the ways that capitalism has found a lifeline for itself is through racism, right? It's far easier to accept um, a maldistribution of wealth and poverty concentrated amongst racial groups than it is amongst class formations. I mean, it's certainly much harder to overcome them and how we identify that as racial capitalism. I think about this all the time when I think about um, migrant labor in Southeast, I'm sorry, in, in, in the Arab world and predominantly um, in, in what we describe as the Persian Gulf, where in order originally to break class solidarity in the Arab world, this is, you know, that where, you know, there's a lot of Palestinians and a lot of Egyptians who are organizing in Kuwait and Iraq, um, and to break that solidarity, what we see is an influx in the advent of um, migrant labor from the Southeast Asian continent and later from the African continent now into the present, which has made it far easier to accept these disparities. Anyway, I was struck by this yesterday and just thinking to myself, <laughs> all of this is happening. The world is literally on fire. People are so thirsty for it. And yet I spent a week ignoring on my social media, trying to ignore anyway, what I thought was a lot of celebrity culture around the Academy Awards and the Grammys. And all of that to say is that I actually have a lot of hope for us. And I think that we're capable of so much. And I think that, you know, distractions are manufactured, um, but that we are capable of so much. How yeah. are you? What's up with you today? <laughs> no, well, I think uh, there was a Protestant theologian, Walter Brueggemann, wrote a book called Prophetic Imagination, mm. where he says that transformational vision occurs at the intersection of two things. One he calls criticality, which is a clear view of the world's need, of its pain, of its hurt, coupled with hope, a sense of its promise and its possibilities, mm. and that one without the other goes to despair or irrelevance, but together... Mm they can, the tension together can inspire transformational change. I certainly experienced that. It's interesting too, the connection with young people, because young people come of age with a critical eye in the world, they find almost of necessity hopeful hearts. And so there's a deep affinity between generation change and social change. It was for my generation. I think it, I hope it is for this generation. I think it may be. But the the challenge then is, is of, um, of, how can I say, grievance is really important, hmm. but so is hope. 
And so then the question of where the hope comes from is a critically important question. And, and by hope, I don't mean flowers in May, la-di-da, I don't even mean optimism. Uh, the best definition I found of hope is uh, by Maimonides, a 12th century uh, philosopher, scholar, who argued that hope is belief in the plausibility of the possible as opposed to the necessity of the probable. In other words, we live in a world in which it is always probable Goliath will win, but sometimes David does. Uh, or we would, it was utterly improbable. We would elect a black man president of this country in 2007. It happened. And our in, in our own lives, we have those experiences of against the odds, the possible triumphed over the probable. Mm -hmm. Now, the academy is organized around the probable and treats probable the probable as the necessary. And so hope for me is in that space between fantasy and certainty of possibility. And that's where cultivation of the imagination is so critically important. But grounded cult, in other words, I know that uh, civil rights movement, the black church played such a crucial role uh, in the movement uh, as a source of solidarity, of, of, of uh, courage, of all the rest. Uh, in the farm worker movement, I was involved in the roots in Mexican culture and in, in uh, Mexican Catholic uh, tradition, uh, as well as being informed by the Mexican Revolution tradition and so forth. In other words, uh, there are cultural sources that can be critically important in, in our own lives, but it's hard to build a movement without that kind of moral grounding, uh, but not in the abstract, but in lived experience. And I think what engaged me so much in organizing was in Mississippi was seeing the connection between individuals transforming their own sense of understanding of themselves and their communities into the source of power that they needed to change the institutional circumstances that created all the problems in the first place. And so that link between how people engage with one another and and how that can be a source of power that's really kind of what i've been working on for for most of my life but you do not get there without hope and and hope is not it's not fanciful it's not, not fanciful it's not fanciful not fanciful it's not, not fanciful. fanciful no hope is a practice hope is absolutely a practice we make these choices every day we can't i i really appreciate you know this this juxtaposition of thinking about reality as the cynicism that can ground us, right? But giving into that is to fall into despair. Not only does it fall into despair, but I found as somebody who is, who is my greatest education, like you, Marshall, was not from, you know, my, um, you know, institutions of academic um, excellence, so to speak, but have actually come from the, from the ground, have come from community, have come from struggle. Those were my, my greatest, my greatest teacher, right, about power was being a student activist at UC Berkeley, right, when we launched divestment. It wasn't BDS. That was the 2005 launch, but we launched divestment against apartheid South Africa. This is the 1980s. Now we're dating. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not. Sorry. I'm not. I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. Excuse I wondered me. about this. I no, no, no. I I'm not that, that old. Yeah. Not apartheid South Africa, apartheid Israel. Ah, okay. But this was 2000, yeah. 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 right? Yeah. This was 2000. This was the start of the Intifada. Ariel Sharon gets elected um, into office for 
the second time after his incursion onto you know the al-aqsa compound with a thousand troops on, on the day of friday prayer right um and this is february 6 2001 and the students for justice in palestine at berkeley basically launched a divestment campaign completely anarchist did not register the organization at the university because no way the university would have given us permission to do anything. We took over buildings. That day we blocked Sather Gate and we reenacted, right? We reenacted an Israeli checkpoint. And there was one side where we said Jews only and you can, all the students can pass through freely. And there was another side that said Palestinians and there you were going to be stopped, harassed, interrogated, right? We had also um, a student that was a pregnant woman who also couldn't get by. We have to remember that the, the gender dynamics of this. And in the middle, we, we started with about maybe Marshall, there might have been 20 of us that started where we unfurled the banner and said divest from apartheid Israel. By the end of that demonstration, within one hour, 300 students had joined us. 300 no, I... students had joined us to, to jo and, and so here I say, right, this began my, my greatest teacher was in the crucible of struggle and organizing. It remains so. But what I found also is that, you know, giving in to, to, you know, our cynicism not only leads to despair, but leads to far worse within our movement, right? A lot of activists, I'm sure you've experienced this, will tell you about toxicity, We'll tell you about how activists attack one another. Yeah, we'll tell you about blackjacketing. And I think that all of these tendencies also stem, you know, deeply from a belief that we can't win. So why not attack one another in order to, you know, make a point, win something before we go down, as opposed to the hope that grounds us in absolutely we can win. Everybody's victory is a collect. Everybody's individual victory is a collective victory because we're not going to win this on our own, but we win this in struggle, in community, together, right? Well, and I so, think... yeah. No, go ahead. Good. Well, I was so I'm drawing on this image that you're giving us of the prophetic, you know, vision. I think you called it of the cynicism. Prophetic the imagination. Yeah. The prophetic imagination. It's not cynicism. It's criticality. Oh, well, I understood criticality when you said it. So maybe I'm using cynicism as synonymous with criticality. Yeah, because criticality, I mean grievance. I mean like hurt, pain, need. And that can easily turn into cynicism. I agree totally. But they're not the same what you're... And okay. It's, it's what you make of the pain and, and how you draw on hope to turn that pain into a source of anger that can lead to courage mm. uh, as opposed to self-hatred, fear, and mm. all the other horrible stuff that goes with suffering. And and so it's it's that balance, that tension place, it seems like is so is so at the heart of what drives movements. That's you know, it, it, it's both. And cynicism is uh, it, I mean it's well, cynicism is like just giving up. I mean it is too I don't think so. I don't think so, but I, I definitely hear what you're saying and appreciate the distinction between them. But I don't think it's giving up. There's a step after, I think, where you do get given to despair. Well, I don't know. I think I think at least the folks that I've had the most encounters with that have a cynical perspective is to say, and maybe it's just words, but it's to mm. say, Hey, it's just how it is. So, you know, just that's what it is. You can't do anything. Uh mm. 
just how it is. And to me, that's that undermines our capacity for being being human beings. I mean, because human beings require hope in order to live as human beings to exercise our day. agency, to exercise our agency every single day. And that it isn't something as a solo performance. It's in context with other people. And unless it's anchored to action, then it just becomes talk. And so, to me, how you how you connect those two. And so, in my experience in movement work, hope was always a critical question. Mm. And and when hope gets lost, then what like what you were saying? I mean, I've heard somebody use the metaphor that we're fighting so many Goliaths, but that instead of being David's to throw stones at Goliath, we throw them at each other, mm. and and that's a problem. And it's a function of powerlessness, I think, because powerlessness divides. Uh, powerlessness turns people on one another, and especially in this world where everybody's competing for donor funds in order mm. to create their power, which is a false way to create power, frankly. It, so it's it's like a lot of cannibalizing going on, rather than the kind of unity that's needed uh, to really build power. And so the question always comes back to me is how to build sufficient, how to build the unity that we need in order to become a source of power. Yeah. You know, I, I heard um, one time in conversation with a poet, activist, um, sister friend, Aja Monet, I heard her, you know, say something that stuck with me, which is that each of our organizing opportunities, we should take them not necessarily simply to win a campaign, but to take them as opportunities to build power. Exactly. What does it mean to build power? Right. And so here we're starting to interrogate different sources of power. And again, I draw from my own experience as someone who's trained as an attorney, enters the academy in so many ways. For, and so for so long, my, my friends and family in Palestine would see me and see these, you know, my tongue speaks without an accent. Yeah. I have access to certain levers of traditional power. And there was a frustration and a desire for me to engage in a more traditional form of power, right? The political center, you know, pivoting towards the political center and the political establishment, which is basically the top, right? This desire that I heard so many times as an organizer, as a Palestinian, where I'd hear Palestinians say to me and to one another, we just need our own APAC, right? The American Israel Public Affairs no, Committee, right. which is the second most influential um, special interest group in the United States after the um, National Rifle Association. And so, you know, I, I've always been unsettled with that, right? I didn't, I didn't think that that was right. I thought that that was a very, um, you know, almost unimaginative. It is an unimaginative idea of how, well, what power is. Well, it's like right? Audrey Lloyd's observation of using, trying to think you can use the master's tools to unravel, you know, to destroy the master's house. And I love Audrey Lord, and I'm not saying that we can't use those tools. You know, I certainly think there's utility in them. But my concern is where where are you focused? How do you recognize power, right? If we only recognize power when we elect members of Congress or in legislative measures and policies and not recognizing power in, in how we've captured institutions or how we've created cultural shifts or mm -hmm. how we've introduced language. And I think that that's what the Palestinian solidarity movement in the United States has done so successfully. I think Con Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib is a remarkable 
you know, achievement for us and something to be proud of, right? As is the fact that several members of Congress have endorsed boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which I think is remarkable. But all of those, right, this like top level, you know, power concentrated and authority in a hierarchical way, that that is a reflection of the power that we built on the ground. That's the reflection of the work that we've been doing for several decades well, of, I think it's, of I think, working um, with other communities, of struggling together, of demonstrating where we stand in this country, on which side of the color line, and which kind of futures we were have been trying to cultivate. I think it's really important that those connections then be transparent, and, and because you know there's a there's a famous cartoon on theory of change where uh, two professors are standing in front of a blackboard and there's a lot of formulas over here and there's a lot of formulas over here and in the middle it says and then a miracle happens <laughs> and i think making the connection right. between what we actually do on mm -hmm. the ground and the outcomes is a is a critical dimension and it's often missing um it's often missing in our analysis uh and so it's replaced with sort of well, if we do enough of this, then that will happen. I, that's not what you're saying. I, I, I know Rashida. We did workshop in Dearborn several years ago with her. And, uh, you know, love what she's doing and the others. I think the question, though, is how do you understand power? I mean, what what is your, how do you define power? Well, that's really interesting. How do I define power? Yeah. I think this is really deep, right? Because the most basic sense is you define power by authority of who gets to make decisions. But that's another way of defining sovereignty within a state framework. I think defining power is being able, um, defining power is, for me is the ability to exercise decisions in your own life, right? Is to be able to manifest that which you want to see. Now, mind you, Marshall, this is off the cuff. I haven't read, you know, hey, about hey, how hey, to find hey, this. The, hey, the, this is not the journal review, okay? <laughs> no, 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 but I, I want to make it clear to anyone listening, you know, don't. This is not scientific. I'm thinking out loud with my, with my compa here right now of how do I define it. I think, you know, the, similar to how I define freedom is the ability to live without fear, right? Yeah. That you can yeah. live today without a, a fear. Power for me is the ability to be able to decide, you know, to decide. It's, it's the ability to make decisions over these details over your daily life, right? And yeah. so I see that, I, I, I see our, our manifestation of power always in the collective because we have to be able to do it together. Nobody can be powerful on their own. You're going to get crushed. You know, yeah. you're going to get crushed. But when you're working, when you're working with other people, when, when, you know, you decide, you know, it's this idea that they can arrest one of us. They can always arrest one of us, but they can't arrest all of us, right? They can always harass one of us, one of us, but they can't harass all of us, right? It's this idea of being able to manifest that, um, which we think is is necessary and possible, and to make those decisions together. Yeah. I'm going to think about this a bit more, but I'm going to ask you the same question: yeah. How would you define power? I guess I, I've come to think of this stuff. You know, so many of these uh, ideas we work with, uh, stories, relationships, strategy, they're actually things human beings do all the time. And I think there's a pretty intuitive understanding of power, which is if, if you need what I've got more than I need what you've got, who's got the power? Mm -hmm. You need what I've got 
more than I need what you've got, who's got the power? Mm -hmm. And if you reverse it, who's got the power? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, anyway, no, I'm thinking on it, but you know what I went to. It's it's well, I, it's it's a way of thinking of power, though. It's not a thing, but a relationship, uh, a relationship between need and resource, and and the dynamic that creates the interdependent dynamic that creates, and that it can build more power through collaboration, uh, like co-op co-ops and stuff like that, but it also can be needs to be used to uh, challenge power being exercised over us. Mm -hmm. And that usually then comes into a question of how to how to find what they need that we have. Uh, it's, you know, it's like when when David or Daud went to fight Galut, went to fight Goliath, you know, he was told take a, a sword, a, a shield and a helmet. And he put them on, but he couldn't move. And that's when he discovered the stones at his feet, that he was not a warrior, he was a shepherd. And as a shepherd, his resourcefulness can compensate for those resources Goliath had. And so it was a big surprise to Goliath. And so what I'm saying is that, that thinking of power in relational terms uh, helps you discover where the links are of interdependence and where the points are of, of influence and how to how to use like Montgomery bus boy how to use our feet to uh, affect the bus company and the so forth at a small level. But the other piece of power that I really draw a lot from is Stephen Luke's works on power radical view, where he talks about you know the obvious use of power, where we see um, uh, George Floyd being murdered. It's clear who won, who lost in that moment. But then you have to ask who decided, who, who authorized all that, which takes you to a second level. And then you can say, well, why wasn't anything done for years? Well, for that, you have to ask who's benefiting and who's losing in order to reveal the structural dimensions of power. Hmm. And for me, in organizing, the challenge is how you connect that third one to the first one. In other words, we can decry institutionalized racism. But in Montgomery, Alabama, they figured out how to turn it into a bus. Now, by turning it into a bus, though, and this is a point that I think you made earlier, which I think is really important, it's not about campaign after campaign. You have to, you have to bank that power somewhere. You have to build it in some form of organization, some form of organized power, so that you are, so that you're fighting the urgent thing in a way that builds the power you need to deal with the structural and the deep things. And I think too often they're separate. It's kind of like, let's deal with this little thing or let's decry this thing, but then how do we couple them? And I think that's a big strategic challenge our movements face. I think that's the biggest strategic challenge. So I want to make about four comments in response to what you said. I don't have a pen and paper, so let me see how my memory is working this I'm sure uh, morning. Um, I want to say, number one, I went, my mind went to two maxims as you were speaking. One maxim is a socialist one that says, um, to, to each according, from each according, to their capacity to each according to their need right right from each according to their capacity to each according to their need right this is how we should be thinking about redistributing wealth yeah. if we're thinking um in material means the second maxim yeah, yeah. the gorilla maxim um which is 
you want to turn your adversary's strengths into weaknesses and your weaknesses into your strengths. Right. So this image of Goliath remembering that, or sorry, David remembering that he's a shepherd, right, is is as a critical source of strength. It's not the source of weakness, exactly. right? Which is which is something that I think you know all exactly. you know, community marginalized communities have learned. Palestinians are a paradigmatic example of this as we've learned over and over and over that we don't have military might we don't have an army we don't have nuclear power but we have moral power right we have we have moral agency and we have used that in order to be able to communicate to the world we have our communities and our ability to sustain one another we have traditions we have tra community traditions oral traditions which have enabled us to be able to survive through collective, you know, what people describe as mutual aid has been our existence, right, under occupation and apartheid, to be able to survive um, in community with one another when there is no state to provide those things. Um, the, the, the third thing I think is, I, I forgot the third, so I'm going to go to the fourth thing that... Oh, um, it's always the most important. No, go ahead. I know, right? What are we yeah, going to do? Yeah. <laughs> I should have brought a pen and paper. But the fourth <laughs> thing that I that I thought of is you were, oh, I think I actually, so I'll add a fifth thing. I can't remember the third thing, but I'm going to add a fifth thing. Okay. The fourth thing is what you said about, right, this, 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 this space between we've organized power, we've built it. How do we translate that? Once we organize that, what are we doing with it? Right. I think BDS has also done this. BDS has, has created a tremendous amount of power. I think Alex Lubin has done wonderful work in showing us. He has an article in the American Quarterly where he demonstrates how students for justice in Palestine and in their organizing on boycott, divestment and sanctions for some, you know, he, he, he traces it for about a decade and a half is able to translate that this has been the primary source of student, you know, what's been radicalizing students in this time. So Marshall, you as a student, what's radicalizing you is the civil rights movement, but for many students today, obviously in addition to black uprising, um, but also it's been the Palestinian struggle that's been illuminating that US's empire, that's been illuminating the cracks in, in American exceptionalism, that's been illuminating the invocation of our universities in all of these structures in order to reveal right um what we can do about it this is what's radicalizing a whole generation of students i remembered number three i remembered number three marshall number three was yesterday i was teaching a, uh, my unit i teach a class on uh, race international law and empire yesterday's unit was basically on the international criminal court so i have all these enthusiastic students <sighs> how do we get these war criminals and this is a class that uses third world approaches to international law in order basically to build in some cynicism while cultivating hope, right? And so one of the uh, points that we studied um, by looking at Marty Kuskinyemi's work was to emphasize that so much of international criminal prosecutions are focused on individual culpability at the expense of historical context and at the expense of responsibility, this point that you're talking about, right? We want to be able to point to a culprit but when we point to a single culprit, what we end up do is absolving so many of us and how we were part of the problem, right? So Hitler is an obvious example because Hitler and 26 Nazis get prosecuted, and Hitler commits suicide, but 26 Nazis get prosecuted at Nuremberg, but Nazism never gets prosecuted. Germans never have to contend, right, with 
with their role in sustaining this culture, right? In, in actually cultivating the space and giving you know rise to this racism in the same way that it's so easy for us to point fingers at Trump and, and, and want to say that, right? Donald Trump is the embodiment of white supremacy in a way that absolves all of us, not just the, you know, the self-avowed white supremacists, but all of us. Who See, have I, think, I think the question then, are you, are, are you then placing people in a place where they have an interest in change? Well, I want, if I, let me just finish this point. I know I've yeah. spoken for um, a bit yeah. longer, but the idea is that, so what does it mean to, to say that all of us are responsible, right? It's nobody wanted racism. Everybody will say I'm not a racist, right? But how are then we all responsible? Not one is, well, not everybody. Obviously we've seen I mean, that and they let us people, know no, as there's, much. There's a lot of people all over the world who, who have let us know as much. Yeah. But even the ones that do believe, let's say the ones that are proud to say that I'm not a racist, right? I think that there's a way in the United States that, and especially this has to do with the law, somebody who studies the law, right? Since the 1976 decision on Bakke versus UC Davis, where the 14th Amendment was read to not just be a protection to, you know, basically be a remedial tool uh, for Black communities that have been subjugated in the United States, but was read to also protect white people, Right since that moment onward, juridically, but also culturally and socially, we've understood racism and anti, excuse me, we've understood anti-racism as colorblindness. And that's a problem because what colorblindness does is it is, is choose the, the, the whole dimension of power and responsibility for it and makes us feel as if we're done. So how do we have agency in order to redistribute that power? And that's precisely leading into what you were asking right now. We are part of the solution when we start to interrogate, right? How is it yeah. that how is it that the mission, the anti-racist mission, and a decolon because the U.S. is a settler colony, a decolonial mission, decolonizing no. uh, project is incomplete in the United States as well, and why we need to participate in it and how? I Which actually, by the way, we're finally at forty-seven minutes in, getting into our title. <laughs> I, I I think that. Real understanding comes from action rather than preceding it. And I, I think I'm a believer in those three questions of Rabbi Hillel. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am for myself alone, what am I? And if not now, when? As a way of thinking about leadership, which means that action generates understanding as opposed to understanding preceding action. And so the question then for me becomes how to, how to, um, turn uh, moral, uh, how can I say, moral claims into political and economic power, because if they're not, see, we learned way back in 1964, the Democratic Convention, that just like might doesn't make right, right doesn't make might either. Mm -hmm. And so the question of how to, how to take one's moral understanding and moral resources and turn those into economic and political power uh, is critical. And it's not just through the state. I mean, BDS is attempting to do that through economic and political action, through the boycotts. We certainly use that in the farm workers. It's widely used, used with South Africa and so forth as a way to translate moral, moral uh, uh, resource into economic and political resource. And it seems to me the fundamental challenge we have in, in the situation in Palestine is, is finding ways to shift the power 
You know, it's it, because when the power shifts, things become possible that weren't possible before. And, and at a certain point, it's sort of like, I remember uh, when I was working with Caesar and the farm workers, there were all kinds of studies of why farm workers were getting screwed. But the question of what to do about it took getting involved in doing something about it and, and emerged from that and from a, from a real deep understanding of power. Uh, and, and what was, you know, in our case, we had to get most people in, we had to get a lot of people in the U.S. and Canada not to eat grapes. Um, that was, it, it sounds trivial, but it's anything but trivial because it's coming up strategically with the way in which individuals can become collectively sources of power and it turned into an economic powerhouse and was able then to, to create the conditions under which farm workers could claim power as well. So I, I, I find it hard to, to look away from this question of how do we actually build the power. And, and you know, organized power, you know, it's very challenging these days when people experience any form of structure as oppressive because it takes structure to create space. It takes structure to create coordination and all the rest of it. And so, I don't know, I, I think there's a tremendous lot, I think there's a whole lot of moral energy out there. And I see it, I've done some work with the Sunrise, I see it in young people around climate change too. But the question is how to turn that moral energy into economic and political power and that's, I think, our challenge. And and I think it's a major challenge. It's one of our challenges, absolutely. I just, I want to lean into this idea, especially around, because I, I, I do want to emphasize Palestine in this as well. Yeah, of course. And lean into this idea of, you know, any Palestinian who's watching right now, whether you're, you're visible, whether you're active, but just if you tell somebody you're Palestinian, the chances, it's almost like, a 50% chance that the person that you're talking to is going to tell you what Palestinians need to do in order to get free, right? They have the solution that somehow we as Palestinians didn't think through, think of. And so this is, this is you know, just a, a, a bit of a, yeah. you know, also the burden of, of not you, obviously, Marshall, but so many who feel like that Palestinians have not been able to get free simply because we haven't thought of the right solution or the right idea. We've been offering solutions. We've been providing visions. We've been producing knowledge. But this isn't about not having whatever. I have I have a whole folder in my inbox of proposals that people have sent me of how I'm sure you do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's lovely. I might I should Let's do this. This is yeah. No, I, know. I should publish it. So but here's the thing that I think makes this so formidable, right? Um, as a Palestinian that not. Yes, we have moral power. Right. Um, but our moral power is not absolute. And our moral power has been something that we've had to demonstrate and to cultivate as well, because the narrative against us has been has been one where moral power has been concentrated in a particular um, Zionist narrative. Right. Mm -hmm. That Israel is necessary, that the creation of Israel was necessary um, and is is the, is the solution, is a source of liberation for Jews who have suffered from racism. And in fact, you know, this is something that was deeply embedded within American culture. I mean, W.E.B. Du Bois and others also believed in this concept that somehow, right, nationalism, ethno-nationalism was, was a solution and a pathway to emancipation. 
So it's not, this, this is a very pervasive view. Now, part of that, not only is, is you know, the commitment to that idea, but it's also been the belief that, and the understanding that Jews are the, have been the canonical victims in, in Western civilizations in mind and history, right? We begin, the, the word genocide is this, and, and the legal term and the convention that criminalizes it is only created in the aftermath of, of the Holocaust. And yet well before, and this is what, you know, Amy Society have shown us, this is what Jacques Burgess is emphasizing. The French had massacred all sorts of, you know, massive atrocities, torture, um, massacres, crimes against humanity in their colonial geographies, especially in Algeria in 132 years of settler colonialism. Yes, the British so, had done and so, and you know, so the, the same in their, so in their colonial respect, geography, the transatlantic with, slave with trade. Nora, with respect, Nora, so did the Mughals in India. So did, uh, so did the, the, the Taipei Revolution in China in the 19th century. I mean, genocide is not uh, an American product or a European product. It's a global product, and it's happened to lots of peoples. And I agree but with we are educated, narrowing it. Which I'm saying this in relation to what it means for Palestinians, then yeah. not only are we trying to, you know, generate this, this, this moral weight, but we are also working against an entire epistemology. That's a, that's a, a lot of work. And I am one who think that we've done a, a, a great job, a tremendous job. Now, I apologize. I interrupted you, but I wanted to finish that thought. No, I mean, I think I think the intellectual work uh, of, you know, deconstructing ideas that are problematic, I think is important. But it's also got to be accompanied by the constructive work of building power and not simply identifying the sources of, of a lack of power, but actually building power. And and that to me is the challenge. You know, it's not that the other is not. I love uh, Amamanda Diche's uh, Danger of a Single Story talk. I, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's wonderful. No, it's about the, it's about the problem of growing up in somebody else's story and the challenge to claim your own. And mm. it's really it's it's really a wonderful account of that. And yes, that is very real. But it also has to connect with the constructive work of building power. And and that is very challenging. And it so it's not that can I'm I saying, offer, can I offer since we're at, at four minutes out, oh, you know, okay. yeah. um, some yeah. ways of Palestinians have been building power? Well, not to be, how can I say? Yes, there has been power building going on, but not enough power to change into a reality on the ground. Obviously. And it, and it, obviously. obviously, obviously, yeah. that's what I'm saying. And I'm saying that, that the real, the real question is, how do we change the reality? Mm -hmm. And how do we begin to? I'm not disagreeing that there hasn't, there isn't progress. There is progress, but there is also things get worse. And you know, you can argue that, you know, it was like, oh, it's going to be two states, and now it's one state. Now, what I'm saying is that we have to concentrate on building the power to change the reality. And I, what I hear you saying is that that in fact is happening, and I want to see that happen, you know, uh, but I want to see more of it happen, and I want right. to know what I can do and what others can do 
to enable more of it to happen. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, part of it is approaching this with a lot of curiosity, right? Part of it is asking questions. What is happening? What are you doing? What are Palestinians? Can we can we listen to Palestinians, right? Even even the idea of allowing Palestinians to narrate, you know, in the words of Edward Said, um, has been one of you know just the space for us to be able to tell you what's happening. Amongst the things that are happening has been a turn away from these political solutions, which offer zero sum outcomes. To think of beyond the political, right? What um, what is our relationship to land? And how does that relationship to land create an infinite, you know, an infinite source of possibilities of how we can coexist on these lands, whereby in, in contrast to a sovereignty framework where it's mutually exclusive and only one sovereign can emerge. So here are the practices of, of fellows who are here, right? Um, I'm thinking of Vivian Sansur who has been studying seeds and studying the land. I'm thinking of Rana Barakat, who have been studying, right, not to memorialize cities, uh, villages like Lifta, and not turning them into museums, but turning them into lived places. I'm thinking of the ways that Palestinians have uh, been able to unite across these geographic and juridical violent demarcations that have separated them in order to create narratives of singularity in a holistic nation um, that we've seen in the Great March of Return and that we certainly saw in the, up, in the unity uprising in May. I'm thinking of the transnational solidarity organizing that has united, there was recently just a conference in Senegal on the African continent on you know, Afro-Palestinian solidarity. There's been work here in the United States where we saw Black Palestinian, renewals of Black Palestinian um, solidarity flourish flourish where understanding both what is the significance, what is Black liberation and its significance to Palestinian liberation and vice versa. What is Palestinian liberation and its significance to Black liberation and the same happening, you know, in, in struggle, as you say, this is about struggle that produces analyses rather than understandings and analyses producing struggle, right? But these, these um, struggles on land against DAPO, Line 3, uh, the Red Hills, the Mauna Kea, right? thinking about indigenous uh, lands and struggles, all of these have been sites of planting seeds, building and cultivating a radical imagination, and certainly uh, building a new kind of power that's defining a new generation. And those, are, you know, what I say in defining new generations, I think that we can also demonstrate and demonstrate that empirically, but given that we're at time, I won't do that and, and, and pause. Oh, is time up? It's time. Oh, no. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, I'd just say I wish you well. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, I think the, the, the challenge of right making might is a big one and and i think that uh, i i i admire all the different ways in which you've described the cultural work that's going on uh the fresh understandings of identity uh the, all of that uh the new coalitions being formed the new relationships being formed uh, people who are developing in their leadership capacity and what i'm saying is that that's great uh, it's going to have to grow a lot more to begin to change well. to begin to change facts on the ground uh, in That's the right. where it needs to change. It has to. 
Well, it has to. So can I just, before we go, Marshall, you asked a question I didn't answer. And for our, our, our listening audience, there is a way that you can be involved and be a part of helping this to grow more and be a part of that change and changing power. And that's in the endorsement of boycott, divestment, and sanctions. That's in the taking I, responsibility. I, I did that a long time ago. Wonderful. So, but that's in the response, you know, now I with thought, your students, right? In integrating it, taking responsibility as American taxpayers, right? We are the source of this. Seven, $777 billion military budget, thanks to Biden. Um, $3.8 billion annually just to Israel, right? These are the sanctions that we need to apply. But then in your daily life, boycott, and, and in your in your institutional life, divestment at Harvard. Um, and I wanna applaud the Harvard Law School Human Rights Clinic for endorsing the apartheid report and also say that that is a way that we can cultivate power by taking responsibility for our role. And at the very least to live by the tenet of do no harm. And doing no harm means at least stopping the harm that we've created. And that harm comes through one, one very explicit way in our provision of means to sustain this violence. So, Hillary, Reem, aren't you supposed to wrap us up for this this conversation? I, it, this is this this needs to be an ongoing conversation. Obviously, it's uh, there's a lot more to unpack. I want to thank everyone who joined us and apologize to those who sent questions that we didn't get to them. I promise that we will share them with both Professor Marshall Gans and Professor Nora Adekat so that they um, will also have an idea of some of the questions that are out there. Um, thank you all. This is, uh, the recording will be available uh, to view on our website in a few days. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, thank you, Marshall, so much. Thank you, Hillary. Thanks, Take care. Sponsor, Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.